Our text comes from the end of Mark 9 this morning. The end of Mark 9, Mark 9, verses 42 through 50, will serve as our text. One of the reasons that I uh, and many other pastors choose to preach through books of the Bible or various parts of Scripture is because it forces us to preach about things that we might not have chosen to preach about on our own. This week and next week, that is the case. This week, our passage talks about hell. Next week's passage talks about divorce and remarriage. If you think I'd pick either one of those things on my own, you're crazy, especially next week's. But they're in God's Word. Jesus spoke about these things, and that means we ignore them to our own peril, right? There's a reason Jesus spoke about these things. To become the people that Christ is calling us to be, we need to know what His Word says about these things. And so, yes, the sermon this morning, as Betsy indicated, is on hell. Uh, If you are visiting with us, you might leave here thinking, I hope not, but thinking that's just a church that preaches hellfire and brimstone. I would like to think that this is a church where the Word of God, the full counsel of God is preached. And this is what we're up to this morning. Um, And so I'm going to do my best to not sugarcoat it, uh, to not soften it, uh, because Jesus didn't. And so uh, that's the topic. Um, That's that. Mark 9, 42 through 50 uh, is our text. And if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a large millstone tied around his neck. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell, where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with each other. This is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word for His people this morning. Let's pray and ask the Spirit to bless us as we study it. Lord, our God, even as we just sang, so now do we pray, teach us, teach us reverence, teach us true humility, teach us how to live in this world as your people, in light of the truth of hell. And Lord, if we do not yet belong to you this morning, we pray that you would give us grace to run to the cross for mercy in light of this truth of everlasting punishment upon the wicked. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Congregation of our Lord and Savior, when the 19th century Scottish pastor Robert Murray McChain was told by his friend, a neighboring pastor, that he had preached on hell... At the previous Sunday service, 
McChain responded by saying to his friend, Oh, and I trust you did so with tears. His point, of course, was a good one. Hell is a somber subject. Hell is not something to be treated lightly. Hell is not something to speak about casually. It is certainly not something to joke around about, as it seems at least a few shows on television do today. My hope and prayer these last few days is that as I preach on hell this morning, I truly might do so with tears, as it were, communicating to you something of the seriousness and the gravity of this truth of the everlasting punishment that is reserved for sinners. There's a a good chance that much of what comes to your mind when you think about hell is Maybe not so much what the Bible thinks about or says about hell, but what man in his, in his fanciful imagination thinks about hell. You think of little red devils prancing around with pitchforks or whatever they are. Uh, that's certainly the case with heaven. Much of what we think about heaven doesn't come from the Bible. It comes from the world. I think the same thing is, is, is true of hell, but we can only know for certain what the Bible tells us about these matters, and so we need to take care to think with the Scripture on these matters. Jesus spoke about hell often. In fact, Jesus spoke about hell more than he spoke about heaven. And that means that Jesus believed it was a truth, it is a truth, that we need to keep ever before us. Okay, it might not be pleasant, it might not be fun to think about, but again, we neglect it to our own peril. If Jesus didn't think we needed to think about it, didn't think we need to understand it, he wouldn't have spoke about it. The fact that he did means it's very, very important. This morning, I want us to see together six truths about hell that are found at the end of Mark chapter 9. Six truths, six truths about hell that are found at the end of Mark chapter 9. The first truth is this, hell exists. Hell exists. In 2018, Pope Francis is said to have denied the existence of hell in a private conversation that he had with an Italian journalist. According to the journalist, he asked the Pope in their private conversation where bad souls go. And the Pope is said to have responded by saying this, they are not punished. Those who repent obtain God's forgiveness and take their place among the ranks of those who contemplate Him. But those who do not repent and cannot be forgiven disappear. They're just gone. A hell does not exist. The disappearance of sinning souls is what exists. Now, the Vatican went into scramble mode after that article came out. They said the Pope was misquoted. That's not what the Pope believes. Whether it is or not, I have no idea. This much is true. There are many who do believe that. There are many who believe that hell does not exist, but to do so is to overlook the clear teaching of Scripture. Look at our text. At the end of verse 43, Jesus talks about going to hell. At the end of verses 45 and 47, he talks about being thrown into hell. You're smart people. I don't have to tell you that you cannot go into or be thrown into a place that does not exist. Notice that first word in verse 
48, with that first word in verse 48, Jesus too, he, he locates this place. The first place is, or the first word, excuse me, is where, right? Where, that is a locative phrase. Jesus here is locating hell. It's a, it's a real place where real things are happening. There are other passages of Scripture we could point to as well. To make this case, they're not hard to find, but for now, just note, hell exists. It's a real place. It is not your state of mind. It's not the situation you're going through as bad and as terrible as that might be. It is a place like heaven is a place. It is a place where people actually go, a place where even now people are. Second, hell is reserved for sinners. Hell is reserved for sinners. That's evident in verses 43 through 47. The operative word here is sin. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell. Hell is reserved for sinners. We might compare it to prison. What is, what is prison? You know what prison is? Prison is the state's way of administering justice to those who, to those who do wrong. And in much the same way, hell is God's way of administering justice to those who do wrong. The catechism asks, will God permit such disobedience and rebellion, such sin, to go unpunished? And it answers this way, certainly not. God is terribly angry about the sin we are born with, as well as the sin we personally commit. As a just judge, He punishes them now and in eternity. So hell is reserved for sinners. It is the righteous, holy, and just God's way of administering justice against those who've transgressed His law and defied His commands. You know, it's interesting, and Betsy mentioned this, and she's not, she's not wrong, and I'm glad she did this because it helps me say this to you, right? We often think hell, that, that hell is, is separation from God, and in a sense it is, right? In a sense it is. It's a separation from God's mercy and a separation from God's grace and a separation from God's care. It is not a complete separation from God, though. It's not a separation from His wrath. God is there in hell in wrath. God is sovereign over hell. Hell is not the devil's playground. God doesn't throw you into hell and leave you to the devil. No, God is sovereign over hell. And God is there in hell in his, in his wrath. Now, on the one hand, this is all quite sobering, isn't it? Because all of us, all of us are sinners. <laughs> Romans 3 says there's no one righteous, not even one. All of us are sinners. I am you are, the person sitting next to you is, all of us are sinners, none of us then deserve anything from God. Not one of us in here deserves anything from God but hell. If we should not receive hell from Him, if we should be welcomed into heaven, there's one reason for it. It's, it's, it's because of His mercy and His grace. Now we'll come back to that in a little bit. But on the other hand, I, I want to speak to those of us who are Christians, right? And we need to understand that there's, there's also comfort for the believer in this doctrine of hell. I'm not sure we think about this very often, but 
Listen to what one author says. He's absolutely right. He says, he says, the doctrine of hell has fallen out of favor among many, but it's there for a reason. God tells us about hell to demonstrate to us the magnitude of His holiness. Hell is what hell is because the holiness of God is what it is. Then he says this, ironically, in doing away with hell, you do away with the very resources that show God's justice. When a person goes through rape or child abuse, for instance, she needs to know that there is a God of such holiness and beauty that His reign can tolerate no evil. Understood rightly, there there is comfort here for the believer. There is comfort for the Christian who's witnessed evil. Comfort for the Christian who's suffered evil. I've said this before, the truth of hell is very much part of what makes God so good. It's a significant part of what allows us to trust God with our lives, and especially the evil in our lives and around us. Think about it, would a a good judge let a murderer off the hook? Would a good judge let a rapist off the hook? Would a good judge let someone whose computer is full of child pornography off the hook? No! Any judge who let any one of those people off the hook would be a horrible judge. And so it is with our God. He cannot, He will not overlook evil. Third, hell is awful. Going to hell is not something to joke about. I often have humor in my sermons. I think it's okay. I think it's endearing. I think it helps communicate truth. I don't think it's appropriate this morning. Hell is nothing to joke about. I've heard stories of people who say to others on their deathbed or their friend lying in a coffin, I'll see you in hell. That'll send shivers down your spine. It's nothing to joke about. It's nothing to look forward to. Hell is awful. So awful that the best comparison Jesus can make for it is to the city of Jerusalem's garbage dump. The Greek word translated hell is Gehenna. That's the word there, translated hell in your text. Gehenna was a small valley south and west of Jerusalem with an infamous reputation. In the Old Testament, this valley is known as the Hinnom Valley. Gehenna is just the Greek version of Hinnom. You read about it in various places of the Old Testament, but it was in this valley where in the, in the days of, of the wicked kings Ahab, or Ahaz, excuse me, and Manasseh, that children were sacrificed to the pagan god Molech. Now, this detestable practice of human sacrifice, it was abolished by King Josiah, and he turned the Hinnom Valley into a garbage dump. And that's what the Hinnom Valley remained right up until the days of Jesus. So Gehenna, Gehenna was the place where the city of Jerusalem, the people of that city, dumped their garbage. Now, verse 48, if your Bibles are open, verse 48 is a quotation from the very end of Isaiah. Isaiah 66, 24 says, And they will go out and look upon the dead bodies of those who rebelled against me. Their worm will not die, nor will their fire be quenched, and they will be loathsome to all mankind. 
According to Isaiah, those are the consequences of rebelling against God. Those who rebel against God will be dead bodies devoured, being devoured by worms and being consumed by fire. This is exactly what was happening in Gehenna in the days of Jesus, okay? To keep the dump from overflowing, from all the trash being put in, the, the trash would be burned. And the fires in this valley were constantly fed by the refuse that was being thrown into it. The fire in Gehenna literally never went out as it were. It was always burning as more trash was put in. What's worse is that this landfill was used as a place to put the bodies of dead animals and executed criminals. So, so dead corpses were part of what was thrown into this dump. And you know what happens to dead corpses, right? Worms feed on the flesh. And so in Gehenna, the, the fire never went out and the worm never died. And so, so Gehenna, in accordance with the end of Isaiah, it became a symbol in the days of Jesus of divine wrath. Gehenna became a picture of what awaited those who rebelled against God. Of course, we need to understand that a good symbol, especially a biblical symbol, it's always exceeded in intensity by that which it represents. That to which a symbol points is always greater than the symbol itself. And so when Jesus here points to the most awful, lurid place in Jerusalem to help his disciples understand what awaits the wicked, there's a sense in which he's saying the very opposite of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.9. That no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has in store for those who hate him and who continue living in rebellion against him. It is worse than you can imagine. You see something of it in Luke 16. You can turn there if you'd like. You don't have to. I'll just read it for you. Luke 16, starting at verse 19. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus. Covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried in hell where he was in torment. He looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me. And send Lazarus to dip, his, to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. Because I am in agony in this fire. Friends, hell is awful. More awful than we can fathom. More awful than we can comprehend. More awful than, than our minds can handle or even want to handle. I'm not having that much fun preaching this sermon right now, I'll be honest with you. It's a place of despair. A place of torment. A place where, where the worm does not die. And the fire is not quenched. But it gets worse, doesn't it? Fourth truth, hell is eternal. As Jesus says here, the worm does not die, the fire is not quenched. And those, those temporal truths about Gehenna, they, they, point, they point on to eternal truths about hell. There is no end. The fire never goes out. The worm never dies. There's no end. 
Matthew 25, 41, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Revelation 14 and 11, and the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. That's hard, isn't it? I mean, you think about eternity in heaven, in glory, hurts your head. You think about eternity in hell blows your mind. How can God be good? Punish people forever. The catechism says God is just and His justice demands that sin committed against His supreme majesty be punished with a supreme penalty. Eternal punishment of body and soul. It seems to me, really, when you get down to it, when you read what the Scriptures say, it seems to me that our difficulty with hell and with an eternal hell stems ultimately from a low view of God and a low view of our sin. It's not surprising that people who think God is their buddy and sin is no big deal would find the truth of an eternal hell offensive and hard to swallow. But the fact is God is infinitely holy and sin is nothing less than cosmic rebellion against the infinitely holy God. The only punishment that fits the crime, it seems, is eternal. Fifth, I've certainly hinted at this already. I almost couldn't get to this point fast enough. Maybe there'll be some, I don't know how this will go, but fifth, fifth, fifth. Hell has an alternative, okay? Hell has an alternative. Rather than being thrown into hell, Jesus makes it clear, we can enter life. Rather than being thrown into hell, we can enter the kingdom of God, he says in verse 47. There is an alternative. God, in his mercy, has made a way for hell-deserving sinners like you and me to not get what we deserve. He has made a way for us to have eternal life rather than eternal death and destruction. Where has he made that way? He's made that way at the cross. On the cross, Jesus bore the the penalty, the punishment that our sins deserve. On the cross, God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. The believer has his sins forgiven, but it's it's not because God chooses to overlook the believer's sin. It's because God looked upon the believer's sin in the person of his son while he was hanging on the cross. And the promise of the gospel is this, it's that as we confess our sins, as we put our faith in Jesus, we receive from God the forgiveness for our sins and the promise of eternal life, okay? Hell has an alternative. I can't say this loud enough. Hell has an alternative and it's found in Christ. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, Paul said to the Philippian jailer. Saved from what? Safe from the consequences of his sin. Safe from death and hell. Safe from that place where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. I said earlier that each one of us as sinners deserves hell. If we're going to escape hell and be welcomed into heaven, it's only by God's mercy and grace. This is the good news of the gospel. God's mercy and grace is offered freely to sinners in Christ. It's not something we can earn. 
It's not something we have to be good enough for. It's something we receive with the empty hand of faith. Even as we come to God and say, Lord Jesus, have mercy upon me, a sinner. Dear friend, if you are not trusting in Christ today, if you are not following Christ today, your soul is in great danger. You are literally a heartbeat away from spending eternity in hell. Even now, will you not? Will you not, by God's grace, humble yourself before the Lord Jesus Christ and acknowledge Him as Savior? Will you not do that? Hell has an alternative, and it's found in Christ. Sixth and final truth, hell adds a level of seriousness and urgency to the Christian life. Hell adds a level of seriousness and urgency to the Christian life. This teaching on hell, it comes in the middle of three exhortations that Jesus gives to his disciples. And it seems that what ties these exhortations together are a series of catchwords. At first it's cause to sin, and then, and then the catchword is fire, and then the catchword is salt, and, and it seems those catchwords kind of tie all of, this, all of this together. But whatever the case may be, it's clear that the truth about hell adds seriousness and urgency to these exhortations. The first exhortation, we could preach a whole sermon just on these exhortations. I'm wrapping it into this one. But the first exhortation is this, cause no one to sin. You can see that in verse 42, right? If anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a large millstone tied around his neck. Jesus here is, is telling his disciples not to cause another believer to sin. He's saying, be careful not to lead another Christian, another believer, away from me. Especially one who is vulnerable, one who is weaker in the faith, one who is, is either a little child or like a little child. And no doubt we're not, to, we're not to do this for this person's sake. I mean, if salvation is found in Christ alone and all those outside of Christ will be condemned to hell, well, then we ought not lead someone away from Christ, right? That makes sense. Of course, the incentive Jesus gives us here is for our own sake. <laughs> he, says, he says, it'd be better for you to be thrown into sea with a millstone, a heavy weight, tied around your neck than for you to lead another believer away from me. The point is, causing another Christian to sin, leading another believer, especially one like a little child who's vulnerable, away from Christ, it's a serious sin. So serious that you'd be better off thrown into the sea, waded straight to the bottom and drowned than to suffer the consequences for it in hell. It's that serious of a sin. Right, so this truth about hell should certainly cause us to be careful not to discourage anyone from following Christ. There's a special warning here for pastors, special warning for teachers, special warning for people who influence and lead other believers, special warning here for parents. Parents, are, are, are we discouraging our children from following Christ in some way, shape, or form? Are we discouraging our children from following the only one who can save their souls from the wrath to come? I've seen parents discourage their kids and lead their kids into sin by the way they talk about the church or by the way they talk even more about other people in the church. Right? 
You run down other people in the church, we cause our children to think negatively of other people in the church. We're causing them to sin. Or maybe we discourage them from following Christ when, you know, something more important comes up on Sunday and we just skip church altogether. Jesus isn't that important. We need to think about these things. We need to think about the effect these things are having on our children. Some of these decisions are causing our kids to stumble and are leading them away from Christ. And in light of the truth of hell, that is no laughing matter. The second exhortation Jesus gives here is is to kill our sin, to be holy, really. This is verses 43 through 48. John Owen said, famously, be killing your sin or your sin will be killing you. Jesus says the exact same thing here, right? You you come to Christ in faith, your sins are forgiven, but, but in all of our hearts and in all of our lives, sin remains, doesn't it? Sin remains, And Jesus here says, hey, that sin that remains in your heart, you put up with it, you coddle it, you tolerate it, you think it's no big deal, you continue to indulge it, the next thing you know, you'll be in hell. The next thing you'll find out is that you never trusted Christ in the first place. Be killing your sin or your sin will be killing you. Jesus makes it clear that killing sin is not easy. It takes extreme measures. Your hand causes you to sin cut it off. Your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. Your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It's not meant to be taken literally. But Jesus' point is is clear, right? If, If the computer, for instance, is a problem for you, pornography maybe is a little too readily available, throw it out. Get rid of it. If your boat or your cottage is an idol, that holds a higher place in your life than the Lord, sell it. If there's a relationship, maybe, that's keeping you from following Christ in faith and repent, cut it off. End it. If you can't stop drinking, stop buying alcohol. If you can't stop buying alcohol, get help. When it comes to sin, You must take extreme measures in rooting out of your life. You must be serious about killing sin, lest it kill you. The truth about hell causes us to be serious about our sanctification and serious about this sin we just sort of laugh at in our lives. The third exhortation Jesus gives us is to have salt in ourselves. What does it mean to have salt in ourselves? Well, Salt is a, is a preserving agent, and in Jesus' day, it was the chief preserving agent. They didn't have freezers, for instance, like we do. Uh, they would preserve their meat with salt. And when the Bible says, says, hey, you Christians, you are the salt of the earth, it's saying that we are, we are people acting as a preservative within a society that is, that is decaying by sin. When Jesus says here, have salt in in yourselves, he's simply calling us to to be filled with those precious, preserving graces of the Holy Spirit that make life better for all. Love, joy, peace. That's what he nails the disciples on here. They've been arguing about who was the greatest. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control, and the like. He's saying, manifest these qualities in your life through faith in me. Have salt in yourselves. Remember the godly life you're called to live. And again, this becomes all the more urgent in light of the truth about hell. The catechism says this. It says that we're to do good, that is, we're to have salt in ourselves so that 
we may be assured of our faith by its fruits, and so that by our godly living, our neighbors may be won over to Christ. In light of the truth about hell, those are things we want, aren't they? We, we want to be assured of our faith. We want to know that we are in Christ and we will be saved from the wrath to come. And the Bible says that it's by, it's by having salt in ourselves, that it's by manifesting the, the fruit of the Spirit in our lives that we gain some level of assurance uh, that our faith is living and true. Right? When I see myself exercise patience towards my children or live in peace with someone whom I have had differences, I, I'm seeing I'm seeing the fruit of the Holy Spirit within me, and I'm seeing evidence of my relationship with Christ. And yet, in light of the truth of hell, I want to know, I want to be certain that I'm in Christ. Having salt in ourselves helps build that certainty. But when we, we also want our neighbors, right, to be won over to Christ. We also want our neighbors to spend eternity with Christ in glory forever, not in hell. And when we do good, when we live as Christ has called us to live, when we have salt in ourselves, Titus said, or Paul says to Titus, we adorn the gospel and we make it attractive to outsiders. And all that, the point I really just wanted to make was this, the truth about hell adds weight and it adds seriousness and it adds urgency to the Christian life. We're to be people of joy, yes, but we're not to be flippant in how we live. We're not to be careless in how we live. No, we are to live the Christian life with urgency and with all seriousness of purpose. To be flat out honest with you, the truth about hell affects how I preach on Sunday. The truth about hell should affect our prayers throughout the week, praying especially for those in our community who do not believe, for those in our lives who do not believe. The truth about hell should honestly Right? We say, as, as a church, we want to take the gospel across the world and across the country and across the street. Well, if this does not propel you across the street, nothing will. Right? Your unbelieving neighbor is on the brink of spending eternity in hell. This truth of hell, it adds seriousness and it adds urgency to the Christian life. It reminds us of what R.C. Sproul used to say, that right now counts forever in both your life and in the life of your neighbor. I'm going to leave you this morning with a quote from J.C. Ryle. He says, there's no mercy in keeping back from men the subject of hell. Fearful and tremendous as it is, it ought to be pressed on all as one of the great truths of Christianity. Our loving Savior speaks frequently of it. The servants of God these days must not be ashamed of confessing their belief in it. Were there no boundless mercy in Christ for all that believe in Him, we might well shrink from the dreadful topic. Were there no precious blood of Christ able to cleanse away all sin, we might well keep silent about the wrath to come. But there is mercy for all who ask in Christ's name. There is a fountain open for all sin. Let us then boldly and unhesitatingly maintain that there is a hell and beseech men and women all over to flee from it before it too late. Let's pray together.
Lord God, this was a difficult thing that you've set before us this morning, but we trust that you set it before us in your wisdom, and you set it before us for our good and for our benefit. Lord, we thank you that there is a fountain for all sin. We thank you that That Jesus has lived the life we haven't. That he's died the death we deserve. That he rose again in order that we might become the objects of your mercy and grace and love. We thank you that he endured our hell so that we might have his heaven. Help us to believe in that. And help us to proclaim that truth to a people so desperately in need of it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to sing about the deep, deep love of Jesus, which is the answer to our problem. is their salvation in Christ, right? God has, God has made a way, and it's fitting then to close with what I think is maybe the greatest benediction in all of Scripture, and I want you to listen closely to these words, dear friends, to Him who is able to keep you from falling 
and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. God is able to do that. To the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore, and all of God's people said together, Amen. Amen.